For 33 years, Alan Hall has insisted he is not Arthur Easton's murderer. But going through police documents, I recently came across a statement I had not seen before. It dates from 2009, and it's from a former police officer who worked on the original murder investigation. His name was Graham Zool. Can you recall Graham Zool at all? I heard the name, but I don't remember the guy. I never had any personal dealings with him. I'm with Greg Hall, and we have Graham Zool's statements in front of us. Graham Zool says in 2000, he was working as a security manager at a supermarket chain where Alan Hall was employed. Graham Zool says it was discovered Alan hadn't disclosed his conviction for murder on his employment application form. A disciplinary meeting was called, attended by Graham Zool, Alan Hall, and the store manager I've chosen not to name. I'm reading here from Graham Zool's statement. He says, From there we went through a process of him admitting that he had not declared his convictions on the form. There was a comment made by Hall during the meeting that I still recall today, that he said words similar to, quote, I killed that guy but didn't admit it. I left the meeting of the mind that Hall had said something to me that he had not said to anyone else. Now this statement I'm reading was given to police in 2009, a time when Alan's case was in the media and he was back in the community. Graham Zool told police he no longer had his written notes of the meeting. Greg, so what was, what's your response to uh, the statement from Graham Zool? It's just a statement made from things he thinks he recollects hearing. Um, he has no hard and fast evidence that it is true what he heard. As he said, his notebooks were destroyed. So you've got to question that straight away. It's been a red flag. Graham Zool says the day after the meeting, he did contact Howard Police, but he's declined to speak to me about his conversation with Alan. But there was another person at this meeting, the store manager, who I have not been able to track down. But in 2009, police did contact him, and he said he couldn't recall Alan, the meeting, or any admission of guilt. What does Alan say about this alleged admission? Um, From my understanding, he says... He denies it, flatly denies it. Um, so I'd rather, I think I'd believe Alan over Graham Zor with his lack of evidence here. It's just his say-so with no, no witnesses or written evidence to back up. I mean, you'd understand people saying, well, you're his brother, of course you would say that. Yeah, that's true. Inquiry, right? I mean, if mm. somebody convicted of murder had neither previously admitted it and a former police officer is saying, he did actually admit it to me, you can understand. I can see why the police would pursue it. So you're not convinced? Oh, no. It's like so many other pieces of evidence in this case, one with two different compelling interpretations. Have you or your family ever doubted Alan's claims of innocence? Oh, no. The question is, who do you believe? From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. This is evidence that wasn't known at the time of the last appeal. There has to be an appeal. But I always started right from the outset that um, I didn't believe it. Again, I didn't believe it. My name is Alan Hall, and I was wrong with three convictions of the murder of Arthur Easton. 
There is something else that has long bothered me about Alan's claims of innocence. That is, if he didn't take the bayonet and hat to the murder scene, how did those items get there? Alan has always maintained that they were stolen out of his bedroom. Yeah, I think that was the one that got stolen out of my yeah. bedroom. Because I was living in the uh, bedroom outside. Yeah. She, she did, Tom. So together with Jeff and Greg Hall, I went to visit Alan's bedroom at the old Hall residence in Papakura. So this is where you were living on the night of the murder? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, right. um, this is where we all, uh, through the back of the shed there, there's a shed down the back and there's a back room down there, that's where Alan and Greg slept. And uh, right. yeah, this is uh, mum's room. Another family lives there, so Jeff goes up and knocks on the door. And so um, I was just, uh, we're just doing a documentary here and um, you know, I'm just revisiting the home, if I could. So, so we just do outside, we're just doing a few things. So is it possible just to go for a, a walk around your house? The house still looks as it did in 1985, a solid brick family home with tidy gardens, including out the back, where Greg and Alan's sleep out was located. The owner lets us in. It's changed a lot. What was once a bedroom is now filled with gardening tools, a lawnmower, but Jeff sees an old reminder. See this, this, this cable here? We laid that. There was a, there's a telephone cable and, it, and we, we laid it down and went inside that little room over there and it came out and we could have like an intercom and we could talk to inside. It was from this room the Hall family says Alan's bayonet and hat were was, taken. Was there any evidence of that burglar having taken place? Were the windows jimmy? No. That's the other strange thing about it. It's like someone had to have access to that room and there's only one person I know of has had a free reign in that room for about three hours, undisturbed by himself. The person Greg is talking about was a friend of his that for legal reasons we will refer to simply as James. Greg says he first showed James Alan's bayonet in September 1985, a month before the Eastern murder. When I showed those bayonets, he... Um, it just says his curiosity, says, take a look at these things, what do you think? And Jeff Hall says he remembers the day when James was over at their house. He says James spent around three hours alone in Alan's room. I, I, I remember vividly um, standing just out, out here actually, playing out here and, uh, and waiting. Just, just doing a few things, just waiting for to come out of the store. And, uh, and when he did... He's sort of, uh, he's, he's, he's normally very chirpy and very friendly and, and talk to oh, hey, yeah, this. But when he came out of the store, he walked straight out of the store. He looked at me like this. He was carrying a bag and he just walked straight right. into the house and uh, totally out of character. Yeah, he, I think he sort of had connections with people that I wouldn't connect with. Yeah, so how do you think it then, say if this is theory is right, that he, he takes the items, how do, they, how do they then find their way into the hands of, the prime suspects. Those prime suspects are the men the Hall family believe are responsible for the murder. They say James was an associate of theirs. Uh, yeah, that is um, the place of work where he, he worked at. It was suspect used to drink in the public bar upstairs and he used to work downstairs in the bottle store. Right. Yeah, so there could have been interaction there. I never saw it, but you can only two people in the same building at the same time quite often. Now, on any objective assessment, the Hall family's burglary theory involving James is problematic. James has flatly denied their belief, and the Hall family never actually saw him take the items. There is also no proof he ever handed them on to the men the Halls say were involved in the murder. But um, that's the only sort of 
plausible link, you yeah. know, from those items leaving that room to turning up on being left at the Easton's property. Now, there is another possibility that has occurred to me along the way. Perhaps the bayonet owned by Alan wasn't the one that killed Arthur Easton. Remember, there was no forensic evidence linking the murder bayonet to Alan. The only link was Alan's own identification of it. He said his bayonet had distinctive rust marks. So when you went and interviewed with the police, they showed you the bayonet and they record you as saying, that's mine. Yeah, and you said you were certain that it was yours. Yeah. Do you remember why you thought you were certain it was yours? Well, we were But Alan is not an expert. He was an amateur collector. I wanted to know if an expert could identify one bayonet from another of the same model. In newspaper reports, police estimated that around 300 of this model of bayonet had been imported into New Zealand in the previous two years. Ninety-six bayonet. Right. Obviously it's a bit earlier, it's got uh, unit markings and everything all over it, but basically... It was time to talk to a bayonet dealer. So Sean, I'll start by asking you, how did you get into this business? Uh, five generations of military in my family, dating back to... About 1840. This is Shane Abercrombie. He owns a military memorabilia store in Auckland. As he told me, there's been generations of his family involved in wars going way back. And got uh, shot in the leg in the New Zealand Land Wars and shot in the face in the Crimea War. Shane's store is filled to bursting with helmets, medals, war paintings, uniforms and, yes, bayonets. I had sent him pictures of the bayonet found at the murder scene. So in your experience of bayonets, would you... Would you be all that confident of a person identifying their own bayonet? Well, he can't identify it. He's not going to write down the serial number, no. so that person cannot identify their bayonet to say that it was his or Because when the police asked him, asked him, how can you be certain that's your bayonet, he said, um, oh, well, it had the same rust marks around the blade and the handle. A lot of bayonets with rust marks. If they don't clean them and you touch them with your fingers, they rust. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't clean them and you don't look after them, they yeah. rust. Right. As simple as that. I checked with other bayonet dealers and collectors, including some in Sweden where the bayonet was made. I asked them the same question. How easy is it to tell these bayonets apart? And time and again, I was told that it's unlikely even for a collector to be able to distinguish between two bayonets of the same model. Here are some of the responses I've had from dealers and collectors read by actors. To be honest, I really don't think it would be possible to recognise it more than say, you know, they look quite similar. Unless they're an extremely detail-oriented person, it's not likely. These things were mass-produced and generally have zero individuality. I doubt that I could positively identify most of my bayonets solely on site. Sure, they're really rare or unique examples, but not most of them. And indeed, the retailer who sold the bayonets to Alan back in the 1980s was actually asked by Shirley Hall if he could identify the murder bayonet as being the one he sold to Alan. In October 1987, he wrote back, As I stated in my evidence, we did not keep records of the serial numbers of the bayonets sold and therefore could not confirm that the bayonet used in the crime was the one we sold to Alan. So let's say the bayonet found at the crime scene was not Alan's bayonet. Then, who else could it have come from? Well, reading through the trial transcript, I was provided with a clue. So Maggie, I was, um, yeah, I was reading the evidence of the guy who sold the bayonet, and he was actually asked, did you sell any other bayonet to anyone else in Papakura? And he said, yes, I sold it to a Mr. who lived at um, 
So I went back through the police um, file and I came across a job sheet and there's a cop and he um, records himself going to visit the address where the bayonet was sent. He is met there by a female resident who isn't identified and he just records her as saying that no, she hadn't heard of anyone by that name living at the address and so he then left. And then his job sheet records the fact that he, he, he just to check what she had told him was true, he checked the electoral roll. Unfortunately, it seems he checked under the wrong spelling of the name. Something similar, but not the same. And when I went back and looked at the electoral roll, indeed, you can see somebody by that name living at that address. So he was he was lied to. It's just odd that you have a police officer turn up at your address, ask if somebody who's recorded in the electoral roll is living there, and you say, I've never heard of that person. To this day, don't know where that bayonet ended up. And I can't find anywhere in the police file that they ever located it. Um, or established that the person had um, either been mistaken when they talked to the police officer or had, uh, worst case scenario, lied to them. Of course, there may be no substance at all to this line of inquiry. But to me, if Alan's case is looked at, this could be a legitimate avenue of inquiry. The next piece of evidence I want to look at is that of the pathologist who was called by the Crown to give evidence at trial. Having seen photographs of Arthur Easton's wounds, he said the following, read here by an actor. The location and direction of the wounds would be easier to explain if the knife was held in the left hand in a dagger grip, with the sharp edge of the blade towards the holder's wrist. Remember, Alan Hall was left-handed. I'm talking to forensic pathologist Dr. Fintan Garavan. To be able to talk about left versus right is a nonsense. You can look at any one stab wound and you can come up with X amount of scenarios that could have caused that stab wound. And whether or not a person is left-handed or right-handed, right-handed is irrelevant. And you don't know whether they're ambidextrous. You don't know whether or not their dominant hand was unavailable to them during the knife fight. Therefore, they use the other hand, vice versa. So you don't know. Dr Garavan was also critical of the murder reconstruction. That was the reenactment that police did with the Eastern Boys in January 1986. As we've previously mentioned, before this exercise, Brendan was recorded as saying the offender had held the bayonet with his right hand. But after the reconstruction, he changed this belief to say the intruder held the bayonet in his left hand. I've never been asked to come witness a reenactment of a fight because I wouldn't go. Uh, you'd be, I would, you may as well take me to the cinema to watch the movies. I would get more enjoyment out of it. Um, it just would be a waste of my time. I, they're not done. Um, and for the same reasons that I spoke earlier on when I told you about, you know, that to do so would make so many assumptions that are based on cinematics. You know, you're going back to this, this concept in your head that you do know how a fight takes place because you've watched a couple of them on TV. You know, it, that's not how it works in the real world. It really isn't. And um, it, to, to do that is to put forward a false premise and you're asking people to accept it to be true when in actual fact it's false. Right. That's a type 1 error in science. You can't do that. It's misleading. And quite frankly, it's stupid. For a second opinion on the handedness of the murderer, I got in touch with Dr. Stephen Symes. He's a forensic anthropologist, again based in the United States. Dismemberments and sharp trauma, well I'm way over 500, I don't know, probably between 500 and 1,000, I don't know. He's an expert in identifying remains and identifying injuries caused by sharp weapons like knives and bayonets. He's done a lot of cases, some pretty gruesome. I had my first dismemberment case in 1986 and 
The investigator said, what do you got? I said, I got this arm. It's been cut off. Like Dr. Garavan, Dr. Syme says he doesn't believe it's possible to determine the handedness of an offender simply by looking at wounds. It's not used. It's not worth a, a damn. It would be thrown out of court here. The only thing you know when, when you get the remains is you know where the tool enters and where it goes inside the body. I recently contacted the pathologist who gave the evidence that the offender was most likely left-handed. I asked him if he would give the same opinion today. I think that my statement for the court is perfectly reasonable, and the conclusion, re-handedness, was qualified by my comment on the grip. I would see no reason to make any change. So there you have it. Another type of evidence that is contested. Okay, the final question to look at, the question of motive. It's important to note that legally, when prosecuting a person for murder, prosecutors do not have an obligation to provide a motive. But it's still a worthwhile consideration. Why would Alan Hall go to the house on Grove Road and kill Arthur Easton? Have you ever broken into a house? Have you ever done this? No. As mentioned in a previous episode, at trial, Alan's lawyers argued that Alan had no motive for murder. But then what type of behavioural characteristics would the offender likely have? Psychologists for over 100 years have studied patterns of behaviour. This is Professor David Cantor from the University of Liverpool, a man who created the field of investigative psychology and indeed gave it its name from that have revealed that there are all sorts of consistencies in what people do and how they do it. Professor Cantor has contributed to more than 100 police cases, including the investigation into the British serial killer John Duffy and the hunt for the New Zealand serial rapist Joseph Thompson. A serial rapist who carried out 56 attacks. Some of the detectives who worked on that case also worked on the Arthur Easton murder inquiry. Given they respected his opinion, I would ask Professor Cantor to take a look at the Eastern homicide. I would avoid trying to paint a picture of who would fit the type because I think that can be very misleading. You've got somebody breaking into a house, carrying a weapon, being prepared to uh, challenge the people in the house. I mean, I can only think of it being a first offence if it was some sort of vendetta, if it was some somebody was, was angry with a member of the household um, and was, was trying to have some sort of revenge. Did you know the Eastons? No. Alan's not known to be a violent individual and he's not known to carry a weapon around with him defensively. He, uh, so, I mean, just at the most elementary level, um, the there doesn't seem to be any basis in thinking that, that he was the culprit. Tying an individual into this crime solely on the basis that, that he had previous ownership of the bayonet and the, the hat seems to me remarkable. So if not Alan, 
Vin Ho. Somebody who's a serial burglar, as most burglars are, would check out the scene, would look around at vulnerable properties or properties where they thought there may be something worth stealing. Someone likely to live nearby. It would also fit in with the individual not living too far away. They would come back to an area that is relatively easy for them to get access to and from which they can get back to a a safe location. Someone who had aggressive tendencies, a fighter. Very few burglars are prepared to stand and fight. Once somebody is aware that they're present, they'll get away as soon as possible. So somebody is prepared to take on um, a uh, the resident in a house that, that they've got into, that individual will be known to have that sort of propensity will be known as an aggressive individual, as somebody very confident about his his physical abilities and possibly actually enjoys a fight. And someone who habitually carried a weapon like the one produced by the intruder after he was shoulder-charged by Brendan Easton. That is part of the lifestyle of the individual, that they carry a weapon apparently hidden in some way and, if challenged, think that pulling the weapon out will give them an edge in that particular fight. It's become part of certain subcultures. So that would be part of it, of carrying a knife within that sort of process. Back in episode two, I spoke to the cop I referred to as Police Officer One, and he told me there was a subculture on the streets of Papakura at the time of the killing. The young and up-and-coming gang prospects would have certainly been armed. The giveaway at the one leg rolled up is generally a sign of being tooled up. So based on the behavioural characteristics outlined by Professor Cantor, he says the offender likely lived locally, had a history of burglary, would have been known to police, known to be aggressive, confident of his fighting ability, and part of a subculture in which carrying a knife for protection was commonplace. So perhaps a member of a gang. I've only met Alan once, but this list of characteristics definitely doesn't describe the Allen Hall that's been described to me by family, friends, lawyers and colleagues. There is of course only so much that can be actually covered in a podcast like this. If Alan wants to get the chance to argue again that he is innocent after all these years, he will need to go back through the courts. And for that, he'd need a new legal team. What are your thoughts, Jeff, on the meeting today? It feels like it's it's a fresh beginning. Uh, it's April 2018, and Jeff Hall, Alan's brother, is on his way to his first meeting with Alan's new lawyer, Ron Mansfield, and private investigator. Tim McKinnell. I mean, Alan's had great lawyers in the past, but uh, this 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 team has something something special. The the amount of high quality evidence yeah. coming through it's it's just amazes me. Justice can't be can't be done without the truth. Alan Hall's family said it was time to move on from the problems of the past. It's so much dejection in the in the years past. We're going into it a little bit apprehensive. To the possibilities of the future. I feel with the team that we have now, uh, with Tim, um, uh, it's, 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 there's new life uh, 
in the case, and uh, it's, it's something that's becoming alive. Hey Maggie, it's Mike. Hello. Do you remember that cop I spoke to, um, Gary Cunningham? Uh, yeah, he was um, he was a policeman who got some information from an informant. He spent time inside. He met, told him that um, that he had done it. Yeah, and he said it was ignored by his bosses. Right. Well, Maggie Bruce Heskiff says was one of the police's first prime suspects, and that's the guy that had convictions for violence and burglaries. So Mr. is very much uh, the centre of attention for a long time. And it appears he's a close fit for the description of the offender originally given by the Eastern Boys on the 111 call. Description of offender is a male Maori, approximately 18 years, 6 foot tall. And witness A. Wearing denim jeans, dark blue sweatshirt with a hood. Uh, right, but he, he had an alibi, didn't he? He denied knowing anything. So that's what I thought, but I've just found a, a police property receipt dated from after Alan's appeal. That's October 1987, um, and it appears as if this guy has signed as taking ownership of a blue jersey and blue jeans. Where did they come from? Well, they're the jersey and jeans that police confiscated from that address associated with... Okay, so... Well, both the jersey and, and that pair of jeans were found with blood traces on them. And the jeans had A-type blood on them. That's Arthur Easton's blood type. And so, did the cops ever ask him about it? Maggie, I don't think they ever spoke to him about it. Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio production by Asher Bastian. Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia. Vinay Ranchhood and James Brown with help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Anand Hira, Tom Turton, Carrie Johnson, Melissa Davies, radio documentary maker Jenny Anderson, Michael Mora and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton, please email us at groveroad at mediaworks.co.nz.